Well, probably some of you have seen the scripture passage in the bulletin today, and if you need to start hunting for Zechariah now, um, that would be a fine thing to do. (laughs) Put your finger there. We're going to go to a couple other places before we get to Zechariah. If you need to use the table of contents, that's fine as well. I realize you don't preach from Zechariah in order to attract a massive crowd of people, and so. Uh, but I'm I'm looking forward to what we're going to study this morning. I, I hope it's beneficial to you. Uh, obviously, you know it's it's Palm Sunday today, and uh, it's the day that we celebrate Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And this triumphal entry marks the beginning of Passion Week, uh, which includes a number of things. It's a very eventful week in the Gospels and in the life of Christ. And it includes, uh, on Thursday night, the transition from Israel celebrating the Passover to the Lord's Supper. Jesus changed all of that. And so now, as believers, we don't celebrate the Passover. We celebrate the Lord's Supper because Jesus is the final Passover lamb. And he shed his blood once for all. And the entire week culminates... Friday with the death of Christ, and then he's in the tomb. And then next Saturday, or I'm sorry, next Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And so this is an important week in the life of the church. And I'd encourage you to think through what is happening. Get a guide. I can recommend one uh, that will help you as you process through uh, what's happening this week and engage in the events of the final week of Christ's life uh, until the resurrection next Sunday. But one of the defining features of this day, of Palm Sunday, is the fact that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And of course, Palm Sunday gets the name from the fact that people laid palm branches down in front of him. And we celebrate that, that he he did ride into the city on a donkey. And two of the gospel writers in particular make mention of that fact. And I want to show you both of those this morning. So go to Matthew chapter 21. And this is where we're going to start. We'll read a couple of passages here. Both of these gospel writers mention this fact and they draw attention to it. And they quote an Old Testament passage. It's the same passage from Zechariah 9, which is where we're going to go in a few minutes. But they quote this Old Testament passage as a prediction of this moment. Okay, so Matthew chapter 21. Let's start in verse 1. I'm just going to read this passage and look at how they key in on this Old Testament quote here. Okay, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Matthew could not be any more clear, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, verse 5, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So pretty dramatic scene. And it really centers on this act of him 
securing this donkey and riding into the city on the donkey. Now, flip over to the Gospel of John, just a few books over, and we're going to go to chapter 12 in the Gospel of John. This is a much shorter account, but there's something interesting here that John, an editorial comment that John makes after this short account. But uh, John 12, start in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So Matthew and John act like this fulfillment, they both quote this passage, and they act like this is a really big deal. In fact, look what John says in verse 16 here. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified after he had ascended to the Father, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. So they remembered this Old Testament passage that had predicted this and had been done to him. And so they they remembered that and they thought, oh, that was significant that that happened. They don't strike them at the time. They're not watching it unfold and thinking about this text, but probably as they thought about it later, they made some of these connections between this Old Testament passage, and they thought, wow, that was significant. And so the question we want to ask this morning is, why did they attach such significance to this? Now, the easy answer is to think in terms of there was a prediction made, and that prediction was fulfilled. And so we sometimes think of it that way, and that's true. (laughs) That is what happened. But that's maybe as far as we go when we think about this. We think, wow, that's really neat. Several hundred years earlier, this prediction was made, and look, it actually happened in the life of Jesus. So the prophets predicted something had happened. God must be God because he can predict the future. And that maybe is as far as our thinking goes when we read these Palm Sunday accounts, the the entry into Jerusalem on the donkey. But what if it's not just that? It is that, but what if it's not just a prediction being fulfilled? But in the Old Testament, there's all this other stuff that goes along with that prediction. And so it's like the Old Testament writer is saying, when this happens, all this other stuff is going to happen too. And it's going to bring about all these other circumstances and situations. And so it's not just a one-to-one fulfillment, but there's a ton of other good news that comes along with this reality and when this happens. When you think of this as an Old Testament text quoted and then fulfilled, and that's all that we think of it as, it's a little like looking through the peephole on your front door. I don't know if you've had that experience lately, but if you look through the peephole, you really can't see a lot. You You can make out that there's a person in front of you, But you can't really see much beyond that. And you don't get a really good perspective on what's going on outside of your door. And I think that's sometimes what happens when we think of these only in terms of prediction and fulfillment in that way. We miss a lot of what's happening on the outside. We miss a broader perspective on what's happening when that person is standing in front of our door. What goes along with it? 
with them and and when they're going to come into our house. And so what we need to do this morning then is we need to say, okay, two of the gospel writers drew our attention to this, so we need to go back into the Old Testament, and we need to think about all the other things that are going to go along with this entry into Jerusalem. There's a ton of other good news that goes along. So go back to Zechariah. Hopefully you found it. Put your finger there. It's right near the end of the Old Testament. So if, you hit, if you're already at Matthew, just take a left, a couple of books. And Zechariah 9 is where, we'll flip around a little bit in Zechariah, but once you've found Zechariah, hold on to it. And look at the words of these promises. You just read them in the New Testament, but look at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, if you're the Jews receiving this promise in Zechariah, this would be particularly good news for you. This would be compelling. Why? Well, to understand that, we need to think about the context of the book of Zechariah. Where does Zechariah fit into the Old Testament story? And what are the people of Israel going through at the time that they receive this promise? What's the most precious thing that you possess? Think about that for a moment. What is important to you? For Israel, there were a couple of things that were very significant. If you grew up as an Israelite, there were some promises that were made that were really important to you. And those gave you a sense of identity as a Jew and as an Israelite. And you know those promises. The promises were that God had chosen Israel out of all the nations on the earth, not based on any goodness that they had done, but in his grace, he had chosen them to be his special people, and he was going to work through them. And as proof of that promise that they were to be his special people, he had given them a land. He told them, this is going to be your land, and I'm going to place you in this land, and then I'm going to dwell with you in this land. And for the one true God to say that, to make that promise, that would be significant for you as a Jew. Then as further proof of God's love and of his relationship with them, they had the temple. Solomon had built this magnificent temple for the people of Israel. And for hundreds of years, the people had seen this temple. They'd lived in this land almost probably to the point where they took it for granted. And generation after generation had grown up knowing that God had chosen them. They had this land and he'd given it to them and they had this beautiful temple. Now, unfortunately, you know the Old Testament story. As they were living in this land with that knowledge in the back of their heads, they had not lived in line with that knowledge, had they? They had consistently acted as if they could do whatever they want, despite God's selection of them and promises to them, despite his covenant with them. They had gone astray over and over again. They disobeyed. They had worshipped other gods. They broke their responsibilities before God. Even though they were living in the land, even though God's presence was among them in the temple, they'd gone astray. And after incredible patience, I mean, God is so faithful and patient. He'd made these promises and he'd waited and he called for them to repent and he called for them to repent. And after a 
a long amount of time, he finally brought about the curses that he promised that he would do in Deuteronomy. You remember those curses? Right before they'd gone into the land, he said, if you obey, I will dwell with you. I will be your special people. But if you disobey, foreign nations will come in and they will carry you away from this land. And first, the northern kingdom, Israel, the northern ten tribes were carried away into exile by Assyria. And then about 150 years later, the southern tribes were carried, Judah was carried away into exile by Babylon. Now, sometimes we read about the exile and we don't think about the ramifications of this for the Jews, okay? Obviously, it's horrible to be carried away from your home as a slave into a foreign land. But think about what that would have said to the Jewish people. They very much believed we are God's special people of all the people on the earth. And they associated that with the fact that they dwelt in this land that God had given to them. And they had this temple where God's presence dwelled. So what happened at the exile? Well, when Babylon came in, the temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was razed to the ground by these foreign invaders, and the people lost their most prized possession. They lost the land, which they associated with their covenant and their relationship with God. God's presence had already departed in Ezekiel because of their sinfulness. He was gone out of the temple, and now the very physical structure of the temple, the holy city of Jerusalem, Zion, all of it was to the ground. And the Israelites were carried out of the land into a foreign land. That was devastating to the Israelites and to their trust in the promises of God. Listen to how they describe this experience of living in exile in Babylon. I think I have it on the screen here. Maybe you guys can just click through that to the next one there. It's in Psalm 137. I'll just flip over there and read it. How about that? Ah, there it is. Here's how they describe this experience of living in exile. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. I mean, you can just feel the devastation in that psalm that a Jew has been separated from God's presence in the land, in the temple, and now they're being tormented by captors in a foreign land. Absolutely devastating. Now, after all of this... After spending 70 years in captivity in Babylon, God, in his gracious kindness, unbelievably enough, remains faithful to his covenant to the people and brings them back into the land of Israel, brings them back to the promised land, which is amazing. But after 70 years, things don't just pick up where they left off, do they? The temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was in shambles. The walls were down. Listen to how one scholar put this, describing life in the land after the return from exile. After the exile, life could not simply return to the way it was before. 
How could there be joy when all that was sacred and precious had been defiled and destroyed by the invaders? It wasn't really the same going back into the land. Now this, this is the point where three prophets come onto the picture in your Old Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And they're the last three books of your Old Testament. And those three prophets were speaking to these people. The people who had come back from exile, they were in the land, the temple was destroyed, and Haggai tells them you need to rebuild the temple. And Zechariah tries to encourage them to remain faithful to the Lord. And so it's in this environment that Zechariah comes onto the scene. What would you say if you were a prophet speaking to these people? I mean, the people are defeated and they're despairing and doubting. They would be thinking things like, are God's covenant promises to Abraham and David even still good? I mean, look what happened to us. Are his promises still going to be fulfilled? What is the future going to be like for us? Are we even still God's chosen people? Does he even still care for us? And so this is where Zechariah comes on the scene. And Zechariah brings words of God's faithfulness to the people. Turn back to Zechariah chapter 1. I want to read you a couple of passages here. Zechariah 1. This is an amazing summary in verses 1 through 6 of the whole Old Testament, really, up until this point. Look at verse 2. We'll start there. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. You know what they're saying? God promised to send us into exile, and he did exactly what he promised. And now we're back in the land. But God's not done with them yet. Look down at verse 12 of chapter 1. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And so Zechariah is going to spend his entire ministry in this book encouraging the people and telling them God is going to do you good in very specific ways. 
And at the center of this encouragement is a long view looking into the future for Israel that God is going to fulfill the promises he made to Abraham. He's going to do it. He is going to make the Jewish people a blessing to the nations. And so Zechariah's message is, you guys are in a difficult spot right here. There's no doubt about it. It is not fun coming back into the land after exile, finding your temple gone, your city destroyed, your homes burnt. It is not fun. But trust the Lord that he will do you good. They need to hope in God's future plans. And here's the beautiful thing about the book of Zechariah. At the center of those plans is this coming Davidic king. And he promises he's going to come and he's going to make things right. And it's not accidental that Matthew and John quote this passage from Zechariah chapter 9. They are saying by quoting that passage, not just that there's a prediction and a fulfillment, but what they're saying is that Jesus's arrival in Jerusalem shows that God is fulfilling his promises to Israel. And ultimately, he's going to fulfill his promises to all nations through this king. So what else happens? What else is promised for when this king arrives? And that's what I want to talk about in our remaining time this morning. Flip back over to Zechariah 9. What are some of the results of this arrival? What else should happen because of the promise of this arrival? We're going to look at four results of the king's arrival. And just like the Jews at this time needed to believe with certainty and hope, this is what is called what what God calls to us to do is to believe with certainty and with hope in these results. So four results of the king's arrival that we believe with certainty and hope. And the first one of these results is joy. Look at verse nine again. I mean, look how he starts this out. This promise of the king to these people in despair, rejoice. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They were in a difficult spot to have hope The Israelites in the land after exile needed to expect something. They needed to look forward to the future and to believe that joy would come again. I mean, let me just remind you again how bleak the situation was. The Hebrews who had recently returned to Judah and Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile were confronted with numerous challenges. In addition, doubt and despair over the seeming failure of God's earlier promises for restoration after the exile, made by prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, spawned disillusionment and apathy among the people. Joy requires hope. If you lack joy this morning, it's because you're lacking in hope. And they were to rejoice and they were to live in joy as they looked forward to and anticipated and hoped in what God would do. And joy can actually define us and define them in the midst of a situation like this, in the midst of difficulty and of trials. Joy can define us. Listen to 1 Peter. 
In this you rejoice. And he's just talked about our salvation. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So this isn't just a promise that has a neat fulfillment at some point in history, although it is that. It's a matter of joy for people who hope in this promise. It should bring joy to them. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But here's our second result. Peace. Peace in verse 10. Look what he says. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. Now we need to think about this seriously for a second. We are used to war in our world, are we not? It's very common. We're not only used to it, but we're generally okay with it. It just seems like something that should happen. And I suspect that we're okay with it, we're used to it. Maybe it makes us a little uncomfortable, but probably because in our culture here in America, we don't experience the ravages of war in our cities, in our neighborhoods, and in our homes. We're separated from it. But imagine for a second that you were part of a people who had been carried off into foreign exile and either you or your parents had watched your city be burned, people that you knew and loved be killed, your homes be destroyed, and a foreign army had invaded your homeland and then taken you away on a thousand-mile march to live in exile. If that had happened, you would be a person who longed for peace. And that's what he says is going to happen in, in verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The implements of war are going to be no more. They won't be needed anymore. Why? Look at the middle there. He shall speak peace to the nations. And you really could say that he shall command peace to the nations. He's not just going to tell the nations they should have peace. By his divine authority, this king is going to bring about a state of peace. And that is based on our third result. One of the results of the king's reign is peace through God's and this king's universal reign. Look at the end of verse 10. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The king's arrival will result in his rule over all. There will be no space that is not directly under his authority and under his reign. And it will be a good reign, a reign that brings peace and prosperity. You should read some of the further promises in Zechariah in chapter 12 and in chapter 14 about what life will be like under this king's reign. It is magnificent. No group will be unaccountable to this king. And there's a reason that Jesus is called the king. And there's a reason that the New Testament speaks of his ministry as bringing the kingdom, as, his, as of him preaching the kingdom. God's original attention for human beings was for human beings to reign over the world and have dominion over the world. And we failed in that. 
But Jesus became a man, a human being, and he will reign and fulfill that expectation and restore things to what they should have been one day. But as you think about these three things, joy, peace, and God's universal reign, we said that these things would come with this promise of the coming king, and his arrival in Jerusalem would bring these things. Well, we're not experiencing them now, are we? We're not seeing these things. Jesus came. The promise was fulfilled that the king would roll into Jerusalem on a donkey. So why aren't we seeing these promises fully arrived and fully here? There's not joy in our hearts all the time. There's not peace and freedom from war and affliction. And we don't see God's universal reign over everything inaugurated at the present time. Why? Well, that brings us to our fourth result. All of this will happen by the king's humble death. This is how he brings this about. And how we're still waiting for the full fulfillment of this. Look at verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And he goes on. God originally made a covenant with Israel, right? At Mount Sinai. And that covenant was ratified by blood. The people promised to obey and abide by that covenant. Well, Israel sinned. Tragically, and so God made a new covenant with his people, and we're partakers of that. And he said in this new covenant that he would write the law on their hearts so that they would obey. And Jesus comes and inaugurates that new covenant through his death. Now, this passage here, Zechariah chapter 9, this passage is quoted in the New Testament, we saw at the beginning of the Passion Week. Zechariah is actually one of the most frequently quoted books in the New Testament, and all of the quotes in Zechariah take place during the Passion Week. They're fulfilled in the Passion Week. And there was probably hope that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem as a king, that he would actually come in and free the people from Roman occupation. But Christ's mission led him Not to the halls of power, but to the cross. That's where the Passion Week ended. In other words, by saying that all these quotes are fulfilled during the Passion Week, Zechariah is saying, and the New Testament authors are saying, the way that these promises come about is through the humble death of this king. It's not exactly what the Israelites expected. These results come to us through his humble death. And so in many ways, as you think about that, we are in a very similar situation to the Jews, are we not? We've received some of the promises. It did happen. He did roll into Jerusalem on a donkey, but we're still waiting in a difficult time. We're in between his first coming and his second coming, and we're waiting and we're anticipating the full arrival of these promises and these results and the fulfillment of these things. And so how do we live in the meantime? Well, let's go back to these and talk about it. How do we live with joy in the meantime? Well, we live in in hope. We look forward. We anticipate the full reception of these promises. And we bring as much of the reality of these things into our lives as we can. We live in joy because our king came once and he's coming back again. And so we look forward to and anticipate that. And that brings joy into our hearts. 
Now, certainly the moment when we see King Jesus on his white horse riding in the clouds to finally and fully make everything right, that will be a moment of unimaginable joy. And we're not going to have that in the present. However, we can experience a down payment of that joy, a little bit of that joy now in our lives because of the anticipation and the faith and the hope that that is going to happen one day. We've already seen God be faithful to his promises here, and we certainly can anticipate that again in the future. And that brings joy. Now, peace. We all know that war is going to end one day and peace is going to cover the earth. But that's not today. That's not the world we live in. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, certainly I don't have the power on my own to stop every war in the world and stop all the conflict in the world. And there are definitely wars that, that need to be fought, that are just, in order to defend the defenseless, in order to pursue justice in the meantime. But Jesus describes the character of his kingdom disciples as those who pursue peace with others. Matthew 5, 9, one of the Beatitudes says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Be a person who delights in peace. That's how we should live in the present. We should look forward to peace and know that that's the end result. And we should try to bring that into our daily lives now as much as we can. A son resembles his father. And Jesus says, you are never more like your father than when you pursue peace in your life. So be a person who delights in peace and not in friction with others. Embody the peace that will be here one day now as you live out a heavenly ethic in your life today. And then God's universal rule, we don't see that now. Things aren't as they should be. We long for that day. It's not here yet. So what we do in the meantime is you and I, as believers, as kingdom disciples, we submit to Christ's lordship in our lives now. We live as if he is Lord over us because he is. And so we practice that rule in us and in our lives, and we submit to him now. And finally, all of this happens by the king's humble death. And so... What that means is that humble death is a significant moment for believers, for us. Everything centers on that. We're committed to that message and that reality that our king brings about all of these things through his humble death. And the only way we can expect these things to happen and the only way God will set things right is through the death of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a place I want to show you where all of this comes together. Turn over to Revelation chapter 5. You see this incredibly clearly here. Things will only be set right through the humble death of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 5. Now, let's start in verse 1. And as you look at verse 1, everything centers on this scroll, okay? Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And the question is, what's on this scroll? What's going on here? Why is it so significant? Most people believe that the scroll is the title deed of the earth. 
The one who is able to open the scroll has the authority and the dominion and the power and the character to be able to take the scroll and to take dominion, to rule and reign over the earth. So that's why the scroll is significant. But they can't find anybody who's worthy to open that scroll. Look at verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Nobody's going to take dominion over the earth, he thinks, because nobody's worthy to open this scroll. And so things will not be set right because there's no good king to rule and to reign. And so he starts to weep over that news, and that is tragic. <laughs> but one of the heavenly elders who's seated nearby tells him that there is one who is worthy. Look at verse 5. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, and look how this one is described. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Notice all the kingly language there. He's a lion. He's of the tribe of Judah, which in Genesis 49, the kings were promised to come through the line of Judah. And then he's the root of David. Obviously, David was Israel's most significant king. And the Davidic covenant, the promises that, an inherit, that a, a descendant of David would reign forever, would come through his line, were made to David. And he also conquers. <laughs> he overtakes and has dominion through his ability and through his reign as king. And he's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. He has the authority. And so as you read verse 5, you see a king described, one with power and authority and ability, and he has all the right characteristics. Now what's amazing in this passage is with a king described there, when John turns and looks, he doesn't see what he expects to see. Look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures... And among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He turns around and looks, expecting to see perhaps a lion, perhaps a king, one who has authority and who has conquered and who has power to take dominion and to open the scroll. And he sees a little wounded lamb. (laughs) Not what he expected. It doesn't make sense. And so notice what the lamb does. Verse 7, he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. He is able to take the scroll and look at the response of the heavenly host to him. And look what they describe as the reason why he can take the scroll. Why does he have authority? Verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. They will rule with him because of the work that he has done. And he accomplishes all of it through his humble, sacrificial death. 
Very much like riding into a city on a donkey in humility. Verses 9 and 10 are the gospel message. This is the good news that you and I are committed to. And we're committed to this good news while we wait for this scene to unfold. It's exactly like the promises made to the people in, that had returned from exile, who were living in difficult times. A king will ride into the city on a donkey. And now we look and we read this promise and we anticipate the day when this will happen. When the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, will take the scroll and will have dominion and authority over the whole world and he will set things right. And there will be joy and peace and his reign. And it all happens because he humbly submitted to death. That is our hope and joy. That's what we tell other people. And that's what we're here to celebrate this week. That's what we rejoice in. And that's why we think about the death of Christ this week. And then that's why the resurrection is such fantastic news. Because he didn't remain dead. He humbled himself to the point of death. And by his resurrection to life, he brings a host of people along with him to rule and reign with him. And that's us. So he came once and he's coming again. We can hope and anticipate and find joy in that. Let's pray. Father, these things are... Amazing realities, and they're just too much for us at times to to take in. We're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for its clarity, for its beauty. What an amazing scene for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, humbly, and to go to his death. And what also an amazing scene for him to be the lion of the tribe of Judah and yet at the same time be a little wounded lamb who humbled himself and by that has all authority and dominion and power over everything. Help our hearts to believe those those scenes and those promises. Help us to trust in those things and help us to find our joy and our hope and our peace in those promises and in those truths. Work in our hearts even now, Father. We thank you for your love and your faithfulness and your grace. We ask all of these things in Christ's name.